0: Welcome everyone to uh, episode two, series two of uh, the Brookie and Berger podcast. Welcome Darren Burgess. Thanks Brookie, good to be here. And our special guest today is Matthew Innes, the high performance manager at the Western Bulldogs. Now we promise not to talk about the grand final, we had Berger lauding it over everyone last week, Uh, Matt, (laughs) Matt, obviously on the uh, the losing side of the grand final, but we don't want to uh, linger on that. Matt, I want to start... I first came across you as a cricketer. I mean, uh, left-arm bowler, yep, right-hand batsman. Right. You know yep. that always interests me. But um, and then you sort of morphed into uh, into a, a career in, in high performance. Just take us through your your journey because a lot of you know you obviously while you were a professional sportsperson, you were still pursuing your long-term career. And uh, a lot of people don't do that. They just live for the moment and uh, and don't worry about what's what happens after sport. So were you always conscious while you were playing cricket that uh, you needed to you know, invest in your future, sort of.
1: Um, yeah. Firstly, thanks for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so I was uh, always thinking about what what happens after after cricket. Um, I... We should
0: mention you played uh, shield cricket for Victoria and
1: WA yep. over a period of
0: half a dozen years or yeah, so. I think or... It was about
1: eleven years in the end. 11, yeah. right. I think that's yeah. important because we years. all
2: played cricket, but he actually
0: yeah, he played, played
1: cricket. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> um... yeah. Yeah. so okay, yeah, sure. So yeah, so I I, um, I guess. As a youngster, um, grew up in Broadford in Victoria, mm-hmm. always played footy and cricket, wanted to play either at a professional level, had a knee reco when I was 17, didn't get back to playing football. So I played cricket. Um, and then, yeah, first for Victoria when I was 19. Um, and I guess my cricket career coincided with Glenn McGrath, Brett Lee, Jason Gillespie, <laughs> these guys. <laughs> yeah, So in front of you. Yeah, so from, I think, 97, I made my debut for Victoria when I was 19 and then um, played... Yeah, for eleven years for Victoria and Western Australia, and I guess knowing the Australian team at that time, it was always going to be hard for me to play one game, let alone have a sustained career. So I always knew that I had to have something else to to fall back on. So I went to uh, the cricket academy as an athlete, and then went back as a what they had back then as a scholarship coach. So I was 22, 23, went back there for a couple of years in the off season. They used to do a, a um, have a player back there to go and help the younger guys. Um, and so I went there as a coach because I thought maybe I might want to go in the coaching yep. path. Um, I, so I kept the coaching part up and also the strength and conditioning side as well. Went back to uni um, when I was about 27 to do a master's. And I got to thirty. Sorry, what undergrad degree so did, I did you So I did a sports used? science undergrad degree when I was straight from high school. Right, okay. And then, Your early cricket days. Yeah, so, yeah, and then went back when I was twenty seven to do the ECU masters, which yep. every person in SNC's <laughs> has done now. <laughs> um, so I did that, and I got to thirty. Had a really good year of cricket, but I would had enough of cricket. Finished my SNC uh, masters, and then an opportunity to come up to either keep playing cricket or to do the SNC with the WA cricket team. So the WA cricket team, but also the bowling coach for them. And then so I was doing both at the same time. And then again, had to work out whether I was going to go down the coaching path or the strength and conditioning high performance path. And then I thought the only further way to go with the coaching was to either coach my own team or go to the Australian team. And I didn't really want to be on the road for for nine yep. months, as you know how, yep. how taxing it can be. Yep. So then I decided to go more of the high performance and got it off the PhD with the Western Bulldogs. So I was, I think, 33 when I got off with that PhD, went to the Bulldogs, and then through that, got into the Western Bulldogs, and I've been there ever since.
0: What was your PhD on? Uh,
1: so yeah. I did altitude and team sport. So back okay. 10 years ago, altitude was a pretty topical <laughs> yep. conversation. So the Bulldogs had a uh, PhD in altitude, so I, I took that up. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. What'd you find?
1: <laughs> I found it works, but I guess the thing I was interested in how long it works for. So being in um, in a team sport was such a long year. Thought you know, back then they had the altitude training camps in November. Thought, well, what are the benefits of that if the season's from March all the way through the biggest games in September? So I wanted to look at um, how long it lasts for. So I found that it does work, um, but the benefits were gone within three to four weeks. So. Um, I guess unless you can so a training camp in November, by the time you get post Christmas, I guess the benefits aren't there as much as what people thought they might have been. So sure. if you can keep topping it up throughout the year, it's a bit different. But um, yeah, so that's probably what I found. Yep. So some clubs
0: have gone down the sort of altitude training room and, and setting up you know things at their at their training facilities to maintain that the response they get at, at, at altitude? I mean, did you go down that track at
1: all, the Bulldogs, or, or not? Uh, with VU, VU's got the facilities there, so if we ever need to use them, we can, we can use that, which we don't a lot because it's hard to, yeah. I guess the, the amount of time you got to invest in it to how much you actually um, get the benefit from. We've probably just gone down the more the path of get your training right and everything else, and then, yeah, it's probably something that you add on, on top of rather than necessarily invest too much into it.
0: I don't think any teams are doing altitude at the moment. Any of the AFL teams so. or NRL I teams? I don't think do, so. Uh, As you said, ten years ago, it was very much. Uh, I think Collingwood did it one year and won the flag. So instantly, everyone reason. said, yes. you know, yes. "We're all <laughs> going to do altitude. It must yeah, work. Exactly. You know, good, it's a good scientific logic." Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so that altitude and that uh, it's a good arrangement, isn't it, between the Bulldogs and, and Victoria University, where they have a combined sort of a job and study sort of program. I'm really impressed with that.
1: Yeah, it's good. We've got, um, so Amber Rowell, who's our sports scientist. She's, um, you know, she's obviously with VU as well. So I got a joint relationship there. We've got some PhD students who who are funded through VU. So it's really good. We get a lot of things with um, some cadets that can come in and they both Get benefits. The cadets yep. get the benefit through being exposed to a high performance program, but we also get um whether it's an extra hand in the gym, whether it's um data collection, that type of thing. So it works for both.
0: Yeah, it's great. I mean we when we were at Liverpool, Darren and I set up a an arrangement like that with John Moore's University it was terrific for, for everyone. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. they are still doing yeah, it. Still yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. No, good. So, yeah, that's something good. we're remembered for anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Nothing else. Um okay, so um you started off with the Bulldogs. In what role? Was it just straight S&C or, you know, um, and then you moved into high performance? Is that uh, the progress sort of?
1: Yeah, so I went there um, for the PhD, but also at the time Williamstown was our Alliance VFL team. So I went there as Williamstown's high performance manager. Right. Um, so it was, it was a good grounding coming from cricket. I hadn't really been involved in football a lot. I did a bit of stuff with the WA under-18s, and East Perth, the back end of my career, but in terms of a senior program, it was the first time with um, Australian football, so it was good to have that VFL experience, combined with obviously learning through the Bulldogs and the PhD. so I was a bit of a hybrid. And then um, Footscray came into the VFL team, so I went from Williamstown to Footscray yep. in 2014, and then 2015, I came into the AFL setup, still finishing my PhD, and then 2016 was my first year as, um, as a performance manager there, so... What's that, six a year now in the role, so Right. Yeah, uh, that's
0: good. Yeah, Budo's never lasted that long no. anymore, but, uh, no, exactly. <laughs> you must be a nicer bloke. Yeah. But um so tell us, I mean, that that move from um basically being an S standard sort of S and C um to that to the high performance role or the performance manager role. I mean what what extra skill set or what are the extra challenges there in uh, in that role?
1: Um I yes, I obviously Burjo's well versed in it as well. I guess what, what people see is people see you as a strength finishing coach who's good at what you do in that area. And then because of that, they think, oh, you're good at that, you'll be a good manager. But yeah. it's, they're not necessarily the same thing. So you go from being a good practitioner and it's almost like a manager is almost a field within a field. So you have to um, – so you're good at that part, but then you have to upskill in terms of people management, um, all the logistics around organising different things. So um, – although you get the opportunity through your strength and initiating, I guess you have to also learn things as you go to be a high-performance manager. Um, And I guess now a lot of the stuff I do in terms of my own professional developments, not so much in the practitioner side, it's more in the people management and all that side of things to try and keep upskilling in that area.
0: Mm. Yeah, so you've done some sort of formal courses in that or is it just learning on the job? I mean, people management is a... You know some people have either got it or they haven't or do you think it's you it can be learned?
1: you think you definitely get better at it as you as you get more experienced. I think when you first start out as a as a manager in whatever area it is, you you're good at a certain thing. so you I guess you try and become good at that and then you gradually once you've nailed that and you can start to improve on the other things as well. So I wouldn't necessarily say I've done any formal qualification. I've been the AFL did a couple of trips to to Europe where, I saw Burjo over at the Leaders Forum, yep. I think, one year. So um, there's been a few little, I guess, informal things I've done, more so than a, a course. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's through having mentors you can chat to, just the people you learn along the way from getting experience. I guess the more experience you get in it, the better you come, become.
2: Yep. What, what would you say the, the main difference, the main skill that you've had to learn or develop um, in going from a practitioner, hands-on part of a team to leading that
1: team yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think um, probably the main skill is when you're a practitioner, being hands-on compared to, I guess, trusting people to, to be able to do what they do really well. So um, I guess when, when I first started, um, because you're really good as a practitioner or Someone thinks you're good at being a <laughs> practitioner. Yeah, it's it's easy to keep being good at that rather than thinking, right, now someone else is going to do that. Someone else, you have to give them responsibility to do that. So I guess the um, whether it's, um, I guess, trusting people to do that, so the ability to hand things over and manage them and give them advice and be able to, I guess, chat to them about how to improve their job and to have a bit more of a broad look at things rather than necessarily just focusing on your area, which whether it's training, whether it's a gym, I guess having a bit of a bigger picture look on the whole the whole footy, footy club. And I guess my experience as an athlete also help that because it helps me relate to the players a bit more. Um, I guess that little bit of coaching I've done previously helps me relate to the coaches. So it's a bit more of a helicopter view on all the different um, sub-departments in the footy department rather than just your area of S&C. That's probably the biggest thing, I reckon.
2: Yeah, I was, I was going to go back to that. Yeah, we often uh, talk about what younger strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists, nutrition, um, need to do, and that's always get in front of a team as early as they can, whether it's their sisters, brothers, local team, and and learn doing that. you had at a slightly different path. I suspect I, I might know the answer, but what was the benefits of being an elite athlete to go into a high performance role and, and strength and conditioning role? Because I think it's, yeah you often talk to people at conferences, yeah, I played a bit of cricket, I played a bit of but you were at the top of your game and then then sort of went back down to almost entry level by doing the PhD and then worked your way to the top of the game in a, in a whole different field.
1: Yeah. What, what,
2: what lessons or what was the benefits of doing it that
1: way? It was definitely um, being able to relate to the athletes. I think that was really important For sure. um, when you're dealing with athletes. Um the other thing is, I think sometimes coming as an athlete, a lot of people who've been an athlete think they can, um, because they're a good athlete, I they think they're going to be a good coach or a good strength conditioning coach because they've done weights. Mm-hmm. So, but it's not necessarily just having been an athlete makes you good at the next phase in your sure. career as well. So I think what benefited me was going back and I touched on it briefly before. I went back and worked with East Perth under-18s. So I was still I was a state cricketer. Went back and worked with East Perth under-18 football team in the Waffle, which is pretty much, in terms of the team, it's, it's a good standard, but it's not... Yeah, it's low. Yeah, yep. it's low. Yeah. And, yep. But it, it actually helped me, I guess, my experience as an athlete, I and mean, I was still an athlete at the time, relate to these guys and actually yeah. so I could communicate with them. Like you said, it actually helped me get in front of a group. It was, if I made a mistake, it wasn't, you're not making a mistake with Marcus Bond and Pelly. Mm-hmm. You're making a mistake with... Um, a 16 year old kid um, which you still feel just as bad yep. if something goes wrong but I guess the consequence isn't as great so I've got the experience of working with a lower level athlete and then rather than thinking I could just come straight into um, an AFL team or a state cricket team I've had a couple of years of standing in front of athletes yep. um, communicating with them working out what does and doesn't work um, so I reckon that was really helpful as well for sure, yeah, yeah, for sure. it's just so
0: important I think it's, it's you know, I mean, starting at the bottom and, and working your way up. I mean, I think, you know, I know I sound like an old, well, I am an old fart, but, you know, I think a lot of young people think they can just sort of, you know, do their exercise science degree and then go in and be a high performance manager in an AFL club. You know? Yeah,
1: <laughs> and, exactly. Uh,
0: and, you know, you need a bit of humility and, and realise that, you know, you, you might have just done your degree, but you really don't know an awful lot. And uh, you've got to start at the bottom and get good experience at whatever level that might be. But it's, you know, usually at a lower level and and usually voluntary. A lot of the time is, uh, you know, again, people think, oh, you know, I need to be paid a fortune. and But you've got to earn that right, haven't you? You've got to – and I'm sure when you're employing people now, you obviously – you know, one of your main roles now is to employ the rest of your team, if you like, whether it be, you know, um, sports scientists, nutritionists, whatever. So what do you look for in, in, you know, what experience that they've had and other than their qualifications, obviously?
1: Yeah, so obviously qualifications is is one thing. Um, Experience with whatever group of athletes it is. So if you're trying to work with an AFL group, um, if you've got two people, one's working in an AFL group and one's at a low level, then obviously that's going to help that person. It's not the be-all and end-all. A big thing, though, is how they fit into your organisation, I think. Um, It's one thing to have the experience, um, the knowledge, qualifications, but if that person's not necessarily going to fit into your organisation, um, then that's you know, that's going to be problematic. So what sort of qualities do you look for to, to
0: know whether someone's going to fit into the organisation?
1: Yeah, I think um, it depends on the role partly, but I think empathy is a, is a good one. If you've got empathy for the athletes, um, if you've got an understanding of um, where other people are coming from, um, someone that listens as well as um, can talk. So obviously how you listen, whether you whether you take in what the person's talking about and you can respond in that uh, perspective. People who can relate to um, all the different departments. So someone might be really good as a practitioner, but if they can't see any wider than just their little area and I guess don't necessarily see how their area fits into the wider football department or whatever department it is. So mm. there's some of the things that I, I guess I look for. Um, if they're willing to get their hands dirty as well with all the COVID cutbacks everyone has to be a bit more broader than what um they maybe once used to have be used to used to be so are there some of the things i reckon you can see if someone fits into your organization
2: so let's say you you've narrowed it down to two people and um what what research what background research do you do on the person who do you call uh to find out whether they fit because they might be technically the same Similar experience, both five years at an AFL club, or how? What, what might be the discerning factor, and how do you go about finding
1: that out? Yeah, so um, obviously the, the one of the big ones is obviously your reference check. So they'll, they'll provide references, but as you know, it's a small industry. <laughs> yep. So you can always usually find someone that they might not necessarily have as a reference that you can bring up and say, you know, how's this person fit in? How, how were they? How how were they to work with? Um, you can usually find out if someone was um, tough to manage. So, yeah, so there's a whole whole range of things like that, just by ringing up people that aren't necessarily their reference checks, but yep. um, who they might come across over their time.
2: Yeah, for sure. That's a, it's a trap that people fall into all the time. The amount of times I've been uh, contacted because, as Brookie so eloquently pointed out, I've been at a few clubs um, <laughs> and said, "You were there with that particular person. How are they?" You know, even though I wasn't clearly on their reference check so yeah it's yeah, a really good point. Um, what about multi-sport stuff the fact that you came from cricket into AFL do you think that that helps somebody have a, have a you know because footy AFL same as soccer or baseball basketball can be fairly insular and you need to be a football guy or an NFL guy but do you think that helps?
1: I think it helps with a different perspective on things definitely so um, cricket being more of a skill-based sport obviously the physical part's still important but in, in essence, if, if you're a great batsman, then you yeah. can generally um, get away with it more than if you're fit but not a great batsman. Yep. So, having been coming from a skill based sport um, can help in certain things. Um, but I think having an understanding of the sport and how, if you can bring things from that sport into the sport you're working with, then that's that's uh, important. There's probably in terms of cricket to Australian football, is less transfer obviously um, your um, sport you've been involved in a lot with whether you call it football or soccer yeah um, yeah either. so yeah so obviously there's different you know there's more you can transfer over with sure. cricket there's things you can but I guess it is a little bit more limited um, I do sometimes talk to players about like for me as a as a bowler it's a bit of a close skill so that compared to goal kicking you can say you know pre pre-ball routines for cricket sure. goal kicking routine for football there's you know, the mental aspect there. So there's little things like that you can do. But in terms of um, the actual sports, um, cricket to football's a bit less. Yeah. But it's, it is it is good to have different experiences um, and being an athlete in one. And I guess that's probably the main thing I can. Yes. Draw for, from for it.
2: Sure. Yeah. Okay. And so that that sort of uh, you mentioned. You know, me and Brookie have been involved in in a couple of different sports. Uh, quite. Um, Consistent with your personality and those who know Matt, he's very humble, quiet, uh, unspoken person. But I only found out just recently you were uh, heavily involved in the Ma- Malaysian Olympic uh, track cycling team. Do you want to? Yeah. Uh, you know, very successful team as well. The first, the only silver medal they've ever won in any sport. Yeah. I think in the in the recent Olympics. So mm. yeah. Tell us how that sort of came about. Someone from Melbourne being involved in uh, Malaysian. Yeah, yeah Malaysian.
1: Um, well, back when I was back when i was a cricket up so um went the australian sport which was in adelaide at the time and we actually shared a house with the cycling team the australian cycling team and i got to know gary new really well um and i'm really good mates with him and one of the coaches at the time john beasley who's and now they're both in footscray um and gary works at beasley cycles which is john's shop and john's huh. the malaysian cycling coach so they were looking for a um S&C coach in 2017 um leading into the um, tokyo olympics and yeah they basically come knocking on my door and ask if i want to do it and i said oh, i'm happy to as long as it fits around my main main job and so yeah so that's how i became involved in it cycling is a sport i've always been interested in um so i thought it'd be good to do so- and as you know when you're involved in the AFL or any sport that's at the high level it's good to have something else to to focus on so Mm -hmm. I thought it worked out really well so the Malaysian team are based in Melbourne Uh, we started off with 8 athletes and then we we, I think we had 2 qualify for the Olympics Um, one Azizul he he won the bronze medal in Rio Um, so he was getting a bit older I think he's 33 34 now which for a track sprint cyclist is right on the edge of maybe starting to um, go down the other side of the hill so this was his pretty much his this was his big Olympics um, so we had a or we thought it was a three year plan and it turned <laughs> yeah. into a four year plan yeah. of how to get Azizul to try and win Malaysia's first ever gold medal in, in any Olympic sport um, he didn't win the gold but he won the silver and the race panned out very different to how anyone thought it would but to win a silver it, it was a Kirin which is a track cycling event it was a yeah Malaysia's first ever silver medal so it was, yeah, it was exciting. very exciting
2: and uh, we spoke about it the other day, but w- what are the main differences, um, and not necessarily from a technical point of view, but more your communication, uh, organisation, um, perhaps long-term planning, integration of staff um, between a team sport and, and a solo sport like that?
1: Yeah, it's really different. Um, the, the team sport aspects compared to individual sports, one thing, but also the long-term plan compared to a week-to-week, Hmm. Plan that we have. So um, in Australian football, you can get focused on the next week, and the results of that game almost dictate you know, what it's like if you had a, had a bad loss, and it's the next week's a bit worse than if you had, had a win. Yeah. Whereas with uh, when you've got an Olympic cycle, so a four year Olympic cycle, it's all focused on that fourth year. So pretty much the first two years, that we're, which is now before Paris, is all I guess building the the foundation for it. So for two years, the results did not matter. So um, we were going to World Championships, World Cup events, Commonwealth Games, and we were we weren't performing great. And I'm thinking in in our sport, when you're performing like this, you're out of a job. <laughs> yeah. Whereas they they knew they had a four year focus, so all they cared about was getting these athletes at certain stages of whether it was increased muscle mass, whatever it was in that those first couple of years knowing that in four years' time they needed to be able to produce, produce this much power to give themselves a chance to win a gold medal. So for the first two years, yeah, we performed nowhere near what I thought I thought, well, I got myself in for here. <laughs> yeah. And then the two-year mark you basically got a two-year Olympic qualifying period, and that's when the results started to matter. So okay. we knew that we started to have to perform results. Again, didn't matter if you're winning. You just needed to get enough points along the way to qualify for the Olympics. And once we qualified then it was all right now we've got another say eight months or it turned out to be you know 18 months to get ready to perform at the best and then um yeah so that's what we did and it was it's with track cycling, it's really prescriptive so if you can reduce this much power you go this fast um yeah. if you can reduce your drag by this much you go this much faster so we knew roughly what we had to do in terms of um, power and strength to be able to Give yourself a chance to win gold. So it was really prescriptive, and it's a really long-term outlook. And the communications, another one. Obviously, dealing with Malaysians, some of them speak really good English, some of them hardly speak English. So that's when your other ways of communication had to be really good. Yeah. What
0: was the balance between sort of on bike training and off bike training as a, for a cyclist, that uh, yeah. track
1: cyclist? So I'm I was purely gym, um, and John he does all the programming, he does all the all the on. On bike stuff, um, so but it depends on the phase. So the first two years, the track didn't matter. So it was all about gym. So right. John said to me, basically, you've got two years to get him as big as you can, and that <laughs> that was the only focus. Right. Um, and how they ride on the track, it pretty much didn't matter. So and then um, when it comes closer to the Olympics, that's when the gym comes out and the the track stuff becomes more of a focus. Mm.
0: Interesting.
2: Yeah, nice. And, and so in that in that first two years, I'm fascinated by that because. Uh, do you do the cyclists practice competition strategy, tactics, all those sorts of things, but knowing that their times are
1: not going to be uh, what they will be if they're in their best physical shape? Pretty much. Okay. Yep. So we had, and it's interesting seeing other other countries with different focuses, how how they're performing. I remember looking at um, certain countries and think well, they're going to be coming the Olympics, they're going to be killing everyone, but yeah. then they were peaking two years earlier for whatever reason. Um, so we had a couple of guys who were really good, so they could do their race tactics against each other at the same level of preparation. Um, so that was that was good for them. Um, but all the tactical stuff happens along the whole time. Um, but it's the physical and the physical stuff that is um, programmed to get them ready for the Olympics. So we st- they still race, they still do all these type of things, but they go and they might go into a world championship tired. Yeah, which okay. for, which for me was you know. Yeah. But obviously that's the that's the thing with... That's what John's great and that's why he's been around for so long because he's got such a big picture. Not It's hard to, I guess, not worry about the results when everyone's worried about the results, but you know you've got two years until you have to be at your best. So that's the hard for thing. Sure. And what what did you take from
2: that without giving away any IP, you know, yeah. or anything like that? What what were the main things that you were able to take from track cycling into, you know, or that, that process of preparing for the Olympics into... Uh, your 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 main role with the Bulldogs.
1: I guess a long term approach is is really important. So especially when you d- with your development level athletes um, and trying to you know you got a first year player who wants to play who might not you know he's not quite ready yet. But I guess trying to get through to him that it is a long term approach. Um, I guess that's probably the main thing. Just thinking bigger picture rather than just thinking wins and losses. But also um, I guess the other thing is. Thinking about, if you've had a, we've obviously had a horrendous grand final, but thinking that there's other things that's, that's not the end of the, it's not the end of the road. So, um, whereas to win a silver medal at the Olympics was great, but that's his, that could be his big chance and he's been going for a gold. So how do you, how do you, I guess, mentally think that, yeah, it's, he hasn't got what he's achieved, but it's still a great effort to be able to win a silver medal. Whereas in Australian football, we think of we've lost the grand final rather than we've finished second. Whereas yeah. Yeah. for in in the track cycling, he's won a silver medal. He's finished second, he's won a silver medal. So I guess that whole different mindset. So it's helped me be a bit more pragmatic in terms of when you might not necessarily achieve what you want to achieve from a team sport.
0: So the cycling coach comes to you and says, just make him as big as you can. So yeah. what's... What, what's your first sort of step in that, or what's your plan? How do you make someone as big as you can? Yeah. Obviously, they don't want to be fat.
1: No, that's right. But
0: um, just to give us your sort of overview of. Let's say you've got two years. Let's make Darren Burgess. You know, <laughs> as he's uh, pretty big as it. <laughs> but you know, let's let's uh, take this person and uh, and make them as big and as powerful and as strong as you can. Uh, they're all yours. You know, yeah. what are you going to do
1: with them? Yeah. So my initial reaction when he said that was, muscle mass doesn't necessarily mean power. That was my initial reaction and so I questioned it for a while I thought well just because you've got more muscle mass doesn't necessarily mean that's functional it doesn't mean it's going to make you go faster there's all these other things that, that play he goes yeah that's fine but we've got we've got two years to see if it does so it was almost experimenting to see that okay you put on muscle mass are they going to go faster from it so that was the first thing to see if it actually worked um, and then I guess it's also it's not just me there you've got the dietitian that's going to going to help um, you've got the performance manager who's going to try and tie it all together with body position to see aer- release or reduce aerodynamic drag, all those type of things. But well, from a start, all right. So what are the what do we learn from all the research about hypertrophy? You know, how, how are we going to maximize hypertrophy? Do we use blood flow restriction? Do we use um, time under tension? Do we use slow eccentric stuff? So all the tools you have as a practitioner, which one of these is going to be useful and which one's going to be the most beneficial at which time so we, we tried them all and then we went through different um phases we said right here's a four month practice phase so these four months we're going to practice we've got an event at the end of it have, have these four months worked to get the result we want at the end of it and if it works that's great right, let's put that in the kit bag for 12 months time when we need it again so there's a lot of experimenting along the way but it's thinking about all the things that you know that does increase muscle mass. So looking back on it, what worked? Oh, the blood flow restriction worked. Yep, definitely. Right, tell us how you used that. I um, oh, just pretty much followed the research that's out there in terms of um, high volume, lower intensity, um, high reps, um, all these type of things. So, um, oh, yeah, so 15 to 20 reps we do, short rest periods, just high time under tension. Um, yeah, so basically that's how, we, that's how we did it, Yeah, which mm-hmm. worked well. Yep, and yeah because it's it's not um,
2: you wouldn't think it's specific to that sport nah. you know to to a sprint essentially a sprint cyclist um, yep. to do uh, high reps and you know but
1: yeah and that's what it, that's what was playing in my head because when I first started working with them I thought well we're just going to do you know under five reps all the time that's what I'm thinking yeah increase yeah. increased strength yes which is increased force building capacity all those type of things. But then when, when you start to deal with the coaches who know the sport, so yeah, it is a max power sport, but a Kieran, which is the one we want a silver in, the race goes for a minute and a half. So even though it's it's not a single contraction, you've got to you need to have this really big gear, ride right, a big gear that needs force to be able to turn it over, you need to be able to turn it over a hundred times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So going so in my head, going from being just being able to produce a lot of force once to being able to do it for a minute to a minute and a half. Once I got my head around that, I guess it changed how how I thought about it.
2: Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so uh, back to back to the the day to day job with the, with the bulldogs. Um, what give us a sort of a, a typical day in terms of the number of conversations and and decisions you might need to make in your role. Let's say it's a main training day. Um, Uh, you know a Wednesday before a Saturday game or whatever it might be Um, just run me through and we can we can have a discussion if you like um, around uh, yeah what you have to decide on on that particular day just so people understand the scope of your role.
1: Yeah Um, and as you know it starts before the Wednesday so it might start say on the Monday when um, all the medical guys they'll get all over the playing list who's Who's come out of the game in decent shape? Who's who needs to be modified? So it starts by me chatting to the, all the medical guys on the Monday and and the coaches as well. So and what do we want to try and get out of the week? Um, so that's it starts a couple of days before the session. Then I'll chat to um, yeah, so chat the physios, chat to the other S and C guys, work out get, I guess a plan for the Monday with the, oh sorry for the Wednesday with the coaches. We want to get out of the session. We start to plan the session based off um, what we want to get out of it, how they've come out of the previous game. Um, then we'll work out which players are doing which drills, um, who has to be modified from it. So that's all done um, before the session happens. Then we get to the, the Wednesday. If it is a Wednesday, uh, then we'll every, all the players come in. We see how they're presented that day off the back of how we thought they present. present. Um, is there any changes that have to happen? There might be a few guys to ha- have to be assessed. They'll be assessed by the physios. There's a coaches meeting going at the same time, so you've got to try and... Be in two places at once, chatting to the physios, chatting to the coaches, seeing what has to be adjusted off the plan that you had. Um, You might have thought you'd have 34 players in training. Now you've either got 28 for one drill and 38 for another. So are these drills going to work? they wanted to do a certain drill you haven't got the numbers for, so you've got to um, translate another drill in. Coaches might want a drill that's higher intensity than what you want. So you have to say, well, (laughs) how can we modify this drill to make sure that We don't get as much speed or change of direction or um, heavy contact compared to what you want, but we still get the result you want. So then you have to, I guess, some logistics around that. Um, And if we change the drill, we thought we had 36. Now there's two others that um, can do it, that couldn't do it. So now you've got 38. So then I guess it's putting all the jigsaw pieces together to try and work out how training looks. Once that's done, try and communicate to all the players about which drills each player's in and out of. Um, Some players are really good at seeing the sheet that I've put up which ones they're and out of, some aren't so good, yeah. so you have to get around to them before training, and then before each drill, again, you have to make sure that any, any changes throughout training, whether um, a player's gone off, uh, whether it's to get restrapped. hopefully it's not through an injury, but there might be something else that, the coach thought he had 36, now he's got 35, he wanted three groups of 12, now he's got two 12s and eleven. so how's that gonna adjust the logistics of training, um, communicating the physios during training, the coaches, the players, uh, in before and after each drill to make sure that what the original plan was that it's still still gonna still gonna work um and then obviously communicating with your sports scientists from a gps perspective are eh, you getting the numbers that you want is there enough speed is there too much speed is the volume what you thought it was going to be all these things that happen as the training session goes hopefully it all goes to plan and then you <laughs> wrap it up at the end of training chat to the players chat to the physios about how everyone's pulled up from it and reload for the next training session.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's a big day. Yeah, it's a fun time. But yeah. I, I guess a couple of scenarios. Um, let's say uh, the coaches get too excited or too excited for your liking, I should say, and the speed is 20% over according to the GPS for that particular session. Um, what, what's your strategy for the rest of the week there or or the next week there to try and – mitigate any injury risk sort of caused by that if there is you know we don't know we speculate that there might be but yeah
1: yeah. it's it's hard because yeah they they do get more speed one day sometimes they'll um, get hurt off the back of it other times they'll be fine so you hope you make them resilient enough to be able to handle that that's the but now that's gone and you can't you you can't change that so then you have to yeah so it's the next session that you can control from there so if you had a session planned whether it was a a you might have to take a drill that had some speed out of the previous or out of the next session. Saying right, we've we've got too much here, and then sometimes you get to say, well, why didn't you tell me that at the time? Well, <laughs> that's fine, it's gone now, so we can't we can't change that.
0: No, I did tell you, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> did you ignored yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so we have to, yeah. So we have to basically adjust the next session off the back of it. Um, if it if it's three days out from the game, I'm not as concerned. If it's two days out from the game, that's where you're holding your breath for for a period of time during the game. Um, but it's about trying to control, I guess, the next session yeah. off the back of that. And yeah. then also learning from that for next time as well. So um, it's, that's where it's important, I think, to have the conversation with whether it's a coach or whoever it is off the back of it, saying we, we plan for this, we've got a bit more, it's done now. But at least next time we do that drill, we know that that's going to give us more than what, yeah. we, what we plan for. So yeah. then you can be proactive next time as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's the big thing about it. He's not controlling what's already happened, yeah. but planning for the next time that you do it. Yeah. And, and probably one of the things people, uh, maybe some of the uh, overseas listeners might have seen the score of the grand final and and only seen that. But I want to take you back to the sort of four or five weeks before that when you guys um, were either first or second on the ladder with, with the Ds and you lost a couple of games going into the, the final series. Last three, yeah. Last three, Um, And just take us through because I don't reckon people could fully appreciate what your team had to go through um, in order to get to that grand final. Um, Take us through some of the more extreme scenarios that you were placed in um, pre-game and post-game and training. And we had them for two nights in Adelaide and thought it was outrageous. But, yeah, I won't prompt it. You go ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so we lost the last three games before final. So as you said, um, Melbourne and the Bulldogs were one and two, which are, whichever order it was, I can't remember. With Most three of games the year. Like yeah. I
2: think 20 of the 23 rounds were one and two or something like that.
1: Yeah. And then the last three games, um, we didn't finish the season well and we finished fifth by, I think we missed out by one goal on finishing top four. So by finishing fifth, that means we had to win every game. As soon as we lost a game, we are out. Um, so we went to Launceston in Tasmania and, um, and we had a hard lockdown in Launceston. Uh, we couldn't, couldn't leave, um, couldn't leave the facility. Uh, so we went there the day we played Sunday. Went there on the Saturday, played the game. We thought if we lose, we're back in Melbourne. If we win, we don't know where we're going because it depended on uh, the Brisbane and um, Port Adelaide game, I think, or Brisbane, Brisbane U, yeah, yeah, Brisbane and Melbourne. So depending on who won, that would depend on where we ended up going. So in the end, we found out we're going to Brisbane. So, so you
2: packed for. You packed for one night in Launceston. Launceston, but knowing that you could go straight away.
1: Yeah. yeah. So we thought, yeah. So we thought we could be gone for five weeks, so we could be gone for one night. So yeah. we didn't know. <laughs> um, we won that game, so then, but even after we won the game, we didn't know whether we could go straight to Brisbane or whether we had to stay in Launceston. So in the end, they said uh, you have to stay in Launceston. Um, so we stayed there for the week, and then we flew up to Brisbane the day before the game. But they wouldn't. Queensland Health. All the states have different health um, regulations, I suppose. Queensland Health wouldn't let the whole team go up; they would only let the twenty-five players go up. So the other seventeen had to stay in Launceston, um, and we also so in
0: Launceston, you, you know, you you had to find training facilities, you had yep. to find grounds to
1: train on, at a you know at a day's notice or, yeah, or less. Pretty much. So we had to plan as if we were going to stay, but we didn't know whether. We're going to Perth, Brisbane, or Launceston until after the game. And then yep. they said, right, you're staying in Launceston. So once we found out we're staying, then we got to find gyms, training facilities, all these type of things. And, and could you get... couldn't
2: get more differing climates than Launceston and Brisbane, Brisbane. as well. No, so that's right. that's another...
1: 100%. Yeah. So we wanted to go to Brisbane straight away for that reason. Sure. But then we found out that only the 25 could go. So anyone else that wasn't playing had to stay in Launceston. Um, not only had to stay in Launceston, but had to find their own accommodation because the, the place we're staying at come the the weekend meant that that was no longer a quarantine facility. So we had to, we had to find Airbnbs for all these players that were 50 kilometers away from each other. So they've gone out to all these Airbnbs around Launceston and had, we had, they couldn't leave. So in terms of food, we had to get food delivered to them. Um, and then, so we were in Brisbane, they were in Launceston and again, they didn't know whether they were going to Perth or whether they were going to go to Melbourne because it all depended on if we were in Brisbane. So get to Brisbane. We couldn't leave our room. Um, and then we had to stay in our room, two in a lift up, two in a lift down. So it took us about 45 minutes to get from the bus to our room. Got to our room. Couldn't leave our room. They had a little corridor where we could eat. But they said, you can't leave your room until everyone's being tested. So that's fine. We stayed in their room. An announcement comes over. Someone's left their room. Dinner's been pushed back half an hour. So it was almost like a punishment that someone left their room that we couldn't eat. So we're, we're staying there. We couldn't leave our room. We, we could train the, the day we got there, but that was the only time we could leave our room. Then we played that game. So how did you have meetings and things like that? Well, I mean, we yeah. had to have the meetings at the ground. So we had, we had meetings when we trained, and then yep. we couldn't see each other pretty much oh. until the game. So they did the knock on the door. When when your foods arrive, or did they do the text? So we could go into, so we're on four floors, so eight or nine people a floor. You could see the eight or nine people on your floor to eat, but you had to go back into your room to eat. It's the only time you could see. And then, so we played a game. At this same time, we got 17 players back in Launceston, not knowing where they're going. We ended up winning by a point. So those players in Launceston had to get a plane to Perth rather than Melbourne. So we all met each other in Perth. Again, a hard lockdown in Perth. Um, we did have a little playpen that we could walk in, which was nice. So
2: I also want to paint it for the listeners. You were playing a team in Adelaide. Yep. But you went from Brisbane and Launceston to Perth.
1: Yep. Yeah. yep. So I just want to point yeah. out that. The... Yeah. So we, were, so we all met up again in Perth. We weren't sure whether we are going to see our teammates who were back in Launceston. But when we won, we thought, this is great. We all get to reunite. So I've gone to, back to Perth. Stayed there for a week, again, in, in lockdown. lockdown, yeah. Um, now, Perth didn't recognise Brisbane, that one day we spent in quarantine in Brisbane. So our quarantine reset when we went back to Perth. But those from Launceston, Perth did recognise Launceston. So we're on a, a week different quarantine countdown clocks. Then we went to Adelaide. Um, they wouldn't let us train in Adelaide. So uh, we went to Adelaide. We played the game in Adelaide. Couldn't leave our hotel. Um, couldn't train in Adelaide. Um, we won the game. That's the prelim final
2: prelim to get to the, to the get to grand, grand final, final and you won by, even though you weren't favourites, you won by
1: 70, 80 yeah, points, I think. Like from, yep. 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 So we won that. and then, But our quarantine, according to Adelaide, finished at midnight. So we could get out the next morning for a walk, but then we got back on the bus, back to Perth, our quarantine started again. So then we're back in Perth, different hotel than what we were originally um, and then we had another week in quarantine in Perth. Luckily, we had a, a week before the granny, so we had a week out.
0: So just to explain, there was two weeks because of the cer- particular circumstances. There's usually only one week between the, the preliminary finals and the, yep. the grand final, but there were two weeks because of the, the COVID issue and, and to make sure everyone could get in the one place. Yeah. So at the start of that two weeks, you were quarantined for a week, yep. and then you were basically free for the second week, is yep. that right?
1: Yep. So we were free from, the I think, Sunday, so the last week of the grand final. Um, that's when we could actually go out and walk around and um, pretty much like you guys were yep. um, for that two weeks. Um, but the food was a hard one. Our dietitian trying to organise, because we were in quarantine in our own rooms, had to organise individual meals for each player. Some players are um, you know, celiac, Celiacan, some players uh, are um, yeah. vegan. Um, some players have, um, yeah, you know, nut allergies. Had to organise yeah. individual meals. High carb, each... low carb. Yeah, high fat, all... low fat. Yeah. To go into yeah.
2: your room, so there wasn't <clears throat> even a communal. Yeah, so in prison, we had to try and room.
1: do that. And then at the last minute, I said, "Now you can." Oh, but this was in Monsestet as well. Yeah, organise individual meals for everyone. So, mm, yeah. and
2: so, the resilience of the group to get through that. Mm. Where do you think that came from? Like, how do you? How can. Yeah, what do you learn from that? Because yeah. it was truly remarkable to, to do what you guys did to get through. Because playing against a team that was based in Adelaide, no lockdown, no, you know, seemingly from the outside had a a, a far more natural preparation than what you guys did. Yeah. Um. Yet you got through all those games without, you know, uh, really comfortably in the end other than the one game in Brisbane, I guess.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know what... I guess um, our group's pretty laid back with that stuff. So, and Bevo's Bevo's great, and he's he's um, yeah. He, I guess he creates a scene of you know let's just let's just deal with what we deal with yeah. type, type of thing, and doesn't make too too much of a deal of it. So, I think it comes from comes from that. I didn't yeah. hear any whinging from anyone, any players or staff. Um, when I say didn't hear any, didn't hear any in the open. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure was <laughs> something going been. on, but yeah, yeah we just. And it became almost like a laughing, like in the the Brisbane stuff. And when, when dinner got delayed, it was like, oh, this, here we go. And, and yeah. no, there was no complaining about. It, it was just, it was almost like a bit of a bit of a joke in the end. So they were just, and it, what it did do is, when you could see each other, and, like, we went to Perth and we had like literally a hundred meter walking area, and it felt like we were on holiday just because you had this yeah. one hundred meter area could, we could actually mm. walk in. So it made you appreciate the things you did have. Yes, so, silly as that sounds. Oh,
2: I think that it's the yeah. same with us. We were under mm-hmm. anywhere near a strict lockdown. What, what are the particular, like...
0: you know, challenges for the high-performance staff in a situation like that? I mean, obviously, maintaining uh, fitness, maintaining, um, uh, you know, you've mentioned nutrition. I mean, huge challenges for the staff.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just not having what you used to have. So, and yeah. just trying to be adaptable. So, the gym stuff was was a challenge. So, and you know, we spoke a little bit about in the. In season, you know what you've got up in, in Perth, and Mm. so that type of thing. So it's about thinking what you've got and how your your normal setup's not going to cut it here. So how you adjust? It's it's almost being just adaptable with what you've got and realizing that it's not going to be perfect. And I guess sometimes you think if everything's not perfect, then you know how can we how can we deal with this? You haven't got the right food, you haven't got the right recovery, the right gym. It's almost like you get worried that you haven't got everything perfect, but it makes you think right. We haven't got it perfect. Let's just deal with what we have got so that's probably that's probably what it, they're the challenges not having what you've normally got but I guess making it not an issue for the players yeah I reckon that uh,
2: that uh, brings about the most important point that I've learnt in this whole COVID sort of scenario I'd be curious to know from you the difference uh, between the real attention to detail that sometimes in a role you kind of have to have you know you're only allowed one minute in the ice bar whatever it might be compared to what you've just described. Um, I've had players in the past, we interviewed uh, Travis Boak in Series 1 and he weighs all his food and, you know, all those sorts of things to what you've just described. Where, where does a balance fit in that, yeah. you know, going forward?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I guess it makes you realise what the things that are important and getting the important stuff right. That's it's something that we that we know. Just getting the... If you get the basics basic stuff right, then... That's ninety percent, isn't it? And the other ten percent stuff on top. But um, it's get the training right, making sure that you know you've the the main key lifts in the gym, whatever it is. Get that stuff really, get that right, and then I guess not making the other stuff really. You know, if you haven't got it, make it. Don't, don't make it a bigger bigger issue for the players. I guess I always thought you couldn't travel on the day of the game to <laughs> to play. You couldn't perform, but this has proven you can. Um, and even though at the start I, like, I didn't think I'd been able to run around in Adelaide before the game, I thought this is not good because we've just had a three-hour flight. How are we going to be stuck in your room and then play a prelim? And I was really anxious about that. But it's important not to put that on the players yep. and just trying to, I guess, make it seem as normal as you can for the playing group. And if, if they feel like it's okay, then I reckon you're halfway there.
2: So do you, it's, a, it's a really good point and something that we spoke about with the Ds in... So our best physical output game for the season was against the Gold Coast at Marvel and it was at least 15% above anything that we've produced Um, and that came on the day after sitting on the tarmac for eight hours in Brisbane because we were due to play and then it got cancelled and then we didn't know whether we were going to Perth. Whatever. So we just sat in the tarmac and I'm ordering Uber Eats and they're driving out to the, all that sort of stuff. The next day we played at midday or some ridiculously early time, and the boys were unbelievable. Um, did you speak about that as a group, um, as a high performance group, about your communication uh, before that that Adelaide game and and to, to not make it a big deal?
1: Yeah, that's what it, just yeah, just don't make it a big deal. That's what we did. So even though we couldn't train, what we did, we, we just tried to work things around. So we organised lunch at the ground. So by organising lunch at the ground, that meant we had access to the ground to walk around for half an hour. Yeah. So even though, you know, the only we couldn't leave our room pretty much except to eat, so we thought, how, how can we make the most of it? So, all right, let's eat at the ground. Yeah. So then we took it to the ground, and then so players could walk around, get a feel for the ground, that type of thing. So um, by doing, and we did the same thing in Brisbane, so just by doing things like that, actually how can we make this situation better the only time the players got to see each other in brisbane was at lunch and we so we had lunch at the ground so just little things like that that we tried to make it as uh, and that was and they loved it because so actually yeah, yeah normally they're trying to go to their own room and spend time by themselves but they wanted to see each other so you
2: stayed at the ground a bit longer but had lunch in yeah, so order we, to so we stayed at
1: the ground had lunch we had to go back to the hotel afterwards yep. but at least we got half hour 40 minutes there to, uh, uh, yeah.
0: excellent. Uh, just about out of time. Um, yeah, what I'm hearing is basically that the normal stuff you guys do is a waste of time because, you know, you don't do it and you'll perform very well. All the stuff, the nuances
2: behind <laughs> oh, it, before that, before that that led to it. Yeah, um, <laughs> quick lesson, uh, you spoke about your own development as a high-performance manager, one of the premier ones going around. What you spoke about PD, how do you teach yourself, what do you do other than talking to people um, any books, any podcasts, anything like that that you could recommend uh, the rest of us listen to
1: um, to help out? Not sure I'm one of the premier high-performance. Absolutely, managers, no <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, no, I, th- I think it's just I, I do try and I try and read as much as I can. I, I do try and stay up to date with what's happening on Twitter because you do see some things that, are, yep, that for sure. are really good. I know it gets a bad rap at times, but if yeah. you follow the right the right people and you see the right things, and they'll recommend things for you. So that's, that's probably the main, my main area of trying to keep up to date with what's going on. Um, I used to read a lot of um, scientific papers. I probably haven't <laughs> been able to do as much of that lately. Um, yeah, so it's more, I guess it's more just trying to keep up to date with people who, you know, there's people on Twitter who I, who I admire, so just trying to follow what they're saying, or guess trying, if they're recommending something, I might just have a quick look at that, so. Yeah, I don't spend as much time as I'd like to, but... Well, well you've got two kids. Two kids. Just yep. renovated a house yep. and, you
2: know, all that sort of stuff. So, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it's a bit going it, on. Makes <laughs> it a bit tough. Yeah. No worries, mate. Hey, listen, we really appreciate it. And, and I don't uh, I don't undersell this by saying that um, Matt's comfortably one of the most humble humans I've ever met. For someone who's achieved so much. So his first year, mm. the Bulldogs won the flag, which we didn't even talk about it. They, they won the whole thing. Mm. Um, so it's a it's a privilege for us to have you on here, mate. Really appreciate it, for sure.
1: No, I appreciate you asking me. It's um, It's been good. No, no worries. Yeah. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks All the so best. Cheers. Beautiful.